I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. How many are glad to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. And thank you for your worship tonight. Thank you for being faithful. Amen. Thank you for coming to Bible study. And uh, the Lord's going to help us tonight. We're thankful for teaching happening around the building. Just the marvelous things of God. Amen. I continue to be amazed by the work of God and by what he is doing in any and every life that allow him to do so. Amen. Somebody say, whosoever will. God is moving in any and every life that will allow him to do so. Amen. We can miss it. We can deny it. We can be too busy for it. But for when we allow him to move in our lives, he is moving in such a great way. And God is moving across the world. I want to talk to us tonight, amen, on the idea of having a clean conscience. The idea of having a clean conscience. The Bible speaks uh, about this and the benefits of this, the value. I do think that people um, sometimes struggle in life. Because of decisions made, of ways behaved, regrets that they have, and that they don't maybe understand the value that there is in standing before God and having a clean and pure conscience, not only before God, but before men. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, there are plenty of examples in history of crisis bringing out courage in people. In times of crisis, we've all read stories, maybe you've even been involved in them personally, when in a time of crisis, you or someone you witnessed rose to the occasion. Instead of running for the hills, instead of crawling into the fetal position, they rose to the occasion and helped out when needed, encouraged shown. And great crisis can bring about great courage, but not always. Not always. In the Bible, we read of a man by the name of Pilate who was faced with a crisis at the trial of Christ, if you will. He was positioned, and he had opportunity, and knew probably what should be done. But he did not rise courageously over the intimidating crowd that day. He did not stand up in the gap. How we handle difficulties is going to be determined by our character. Everybody say character. Character. How we handle difficulties will be determined by our character. Paul's letters to the Corinthian church are very personal. When you read his letters to the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, you you are reading the heart of Paul. He lets us in on some of the challenges that he was personally facing and that the people that traveled with him were facing, some of the difficulties of ministry, some of these things, and criticism from the Corinthian church and people calling him a liar, uh, opposition to spiritual authority, plus the difficulties he was experiencing in Asia. We read in 2 Corinthians 1, 
beginning in verse 8, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust. Somebody said we trust. We trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together for, uh, by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. He's, he's thankful. He's thankful. But at the same time, he says, I don't want you to misunderstand the situation. It's been very difficult. It's been very challenging. We've had a lot of opposition. We've had a lot of uh, people that have come against us. And with all of that was coming on, with all of that that the Apostle Paul is dealing with, why didn't he quit? Why didn't he give up? Why didn't he say, you know, these people don't even want it? They're not even interested. What am I putting forth all this effort for? Why do I care more about their soul than they care about their soul? Why, why, why didn't he give up? What was he held up by? I believe that he was held up by a clear conscience that he had in his relationship with God. I want to read 2 Corinthians 1. You can turn there. I want to read 12 through 24. I'm going to read it from the NIV version. You can follow along. But he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 24, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. He says our conscience testifies. It speaks on our behalf of how we have behaved. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us, In part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as well as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, confident of this. I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I will say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it was always been yes. For no matter how many promises God had made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it. That it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Now there's a lot happening here. There's a lot going on. And you can kind of begin to pick up on the heart of Paul. There's emotion in this. 
and there's some, uh, there's some hard words, there's some strong words, there's some kindness, there, there's a lot happening. He speaks of this thing, this conscience. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. He speaks of this word conscience. Our English word comes from two Latin words, com, which is with, and sire, to know. It's that inner part of us that knows with our spirit. It approves or accuses depending on whether we do right or we do wrong. It's that voice in your head. Everybody knows they have a conscience, right? I hope we're all very, very aware of that. Conscience is not the law of God, but it does agree with God's law. In Matthew 6, and 23, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. It's kind of like that, that, that dirty window. And the dirtier that window gets, the light shining through it gets dimmer and dimmer. Right? When it was a clean window, the light came through pretty good. But the dirtier that window gets, the less light is coming in. Paul uses the word conscience some 23 times in his writings. It was no doubt an important part of his walk with God. It was an important part of his relationship with God and with other people. It was an important part of how he sustained himself and his ministry. Acts 24 and 16, and, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He said, I work at having a conscience that is void of offense, both toward God, yes, yes, if we're not careful, we can be offended at God and we can live in an offense towards God. There are people that struggle in their personal relationship with Jesus Christ because they got mad at God for something and they've never forgiven him. Amen. There are people that struggle because they got upset about something that God allowed to come into their life. Something that God didn't stop. They think God should have stopped it. They think God should have changed it. They think God should have healed it. They think God should have dealt with it. And God didn't do what they wanted him to do. And they got upset with God. And now they have an issue with God. And so they don't stand before God with a pure, clean conscience. Or a conscience that is void of offense. And that's God. And if we can have a problem... With God, we sure enough can have a problem with people. If you can have a problem with he who is perfect in every way, you can sure have a problem with people. Amen? If you can have a problem with the omniscient one, the only wise God, the one who loved us enough to die on a cross for us, you're sure enough going to be able to have a problem with people. And he says here that, it, it, that, that, that I have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. When we have a good conscience, we have integrity. We're not wishy-washy. We can be trusted. People can trust us. Why did some of the Corinthians accuse Paul of deception? Because he had been forced to change his plans. He wanted to do something. 
He said he was going to try to do something. He wasn't able to do it. And they got mad at him. He was forced to change his plans. 1 Corinthians 16, 5-7. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. That's what he said. Now, I want you to notice a couple elements here that Paul says when he writes to them, that should have been a, a level of protection for him. Remember, this is a human being, right? Paul is a human being. We're all aware of that. Everybody with me tonight? Paul's a human being. And we see that. We know that. So he says a couple things in his letter to them that should have protected him. First of all, there's the human element. He says, and it may be that I will abide. Maybe. He doesn't say, I absolutely guarantee this is going to work out this way. He says, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I want to do. And it may be that I might be able to abide with you for a little while. That's the human element. The other thing that sh should have given him a little bit of protection is the God element. He says, I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. Now, that should be a little bit of covering. He's saying, I, I, this is what I want to do if the Lord permit. It's kind of like the old saying, Lord willing in the creek don't rise. That's Paul's version of that. So he decided to make two trips to Corinth. One on the way to Macedonia and one on the way from Macedonia. He then changes the plan. Why? 2 Corinthians 1.23. Moreover, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2.1-3. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I have ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul had to do a lot of work on the church in Corinth. They needed a lot of work. And several issues had already been dealt with. And frankly, he couldn't endure another painful visit right now. I don't want to come to you in sorrow. Because if I come to you in sorrow and you're in sorrow, which one of us is going to help each other? It's not the best time right now for me to come. He had a lot going on. They needed a lot of work. And even though he informed them of why he did it, they still accused him of some things. And 1 and 12, he denied that he acted in fleshly wisdom. He denied, I'm not acting, this isn't fleshly wisdom. And 1 and 17, he denied that he was being careless with the will of God. I'm not being careless with the will of God. I'm considering the will of God. But the fact that he has to state these things is what allows us to know what he's up against. It allows us to understand what he's being accused of or what people are saying about him. 
They were accusing him of his yes being no and his no being yes. They're calling him a liar. Somebody say misunderstandings. Ah, good old misunderstandings. They're so difficult to untangle because one often leads to another. You try to untangle one misunderstanding and you cause another misunderstanding. You find out, well, I'm going to go get, figure out what this misunderstanding was. And, and they say, well, that's not, what I, that's not what I heard. I heard this. Well, now i got to go figure out what that misunderstanding. They say, well, that's not what I meant at all. I said this because, because this is what I thought. Once you question someone's integrity, the door is open to all kinds of problems. Once someone, when you believe someone doesn't have a clean conscience, that they have done something purposely, like say yes, but do mean no, or mean yo, but say yes. It opens up the door for all kinds of issues. Paul, in the face of accusation, stands firm because he had a clear conscience. Now, I want us to understand this is the value, the value of a clean conscience is because misunderstandings happen all the time. All the time. They happen all the time. And people do good things all the time. Sometimes they don't do such good things. And the value of you having a clean conscience is something that can keep you out of the fray. Let me say, like, it, it keeps you out of the muck. It keeps, the, it keeps you from getting wrapped up in the nonsense. Can I get an amen? Paul has a clear conscience, what he wrote, what he said, what he lived. They were all in agreement. The things that he said, the things he wrote to them in the letters, and the way he lived his life, these things were in agreement. He was not in disagreement with himself. The reason why people struggle with misunderstandings, the reason why people struggle with understanding what other people are trying to say and the confusion reigns and the reason we struggle sometimes by doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing is because we are not in agreement with ourselves. We're not in agreement with ourselves. Our heart's saying one thing and our mind is saying another thing and our mouth is saying another thing and our hands are saying another thing, right? And how am I going to be in agreement with you if I'm not in agreement with myself? He lived his life with this understanding. If the Lord permit. Everybody say, if the Lord permit. Hit your neighbor, tell him, if the Lord permit. James. James writes to us in the fourth chapter. He says in 13 through 15, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and we're buying and we're selling and we'll get gain, wherein as you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, 
if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. He says, you're talking to each other about going into the city and staying there for a year and things are gonna work out well and then you're gonna move on to the next thing. And he says, you don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And you're all confident and so boldly declaring how everything's just gonna work out and you don't even know what you ought to say if the Lord will. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Now, let me just throw this out there. This is not offered to us as some sort of get out of jail free card. You know, the wife says, honey, can you stop by the store and get some milk on the way home? You're not allowed to say, yes, if the Lord will. <laughs> if the Lord permit. <laughs> can you take out the trash? If it be the Lord's will. The trash shall be taken out by this time tomorrow. And when you don't take the trash out, it must not have been the Lord's will. I forgot about it. See, if it was his will, he would have reminded me of it. <laughs> Somebody say, you're on some dangerous ground now. Some dangerous ground. It's, just, it's not our own little apostolic go-to excuse this is truly about God's will being done. It's about a high priority on God's will over my will and over your will. Paul lived in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. He lived his life in the light of the return of Christ. Paul lived his life in the light of making heaven his eternal home. Nothing was worth missing heaven for. Nothing was worth missing heaven for. And so we can allow instances in life to get so big that we miss the big picture. We can allow things that should not be that big of a deal to become a big deal and disrupt us or distract us from the things that truly matter in this life. A good question in challenging times is this. Do I want to chance heaven with this? It's a good thing to ask yourself one why when you, when you got yourself all worked up. When you got yourself all stirred up into a frenzy about something, when you're all up in arms about the way somebody behaved or acted or what they said, you need to ask yourself once in a while, do I want to chance heaven with this? Do I want to go down a road that can cause me to miss out on heaven because so-and-so did this or somebody said that or they behaved this way? 2 Corinthians 1 and 14, as also you have, acknowledged, you have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord Jesus refers to Christ's return for his church. He's like, look, this is, what we're, this is what it's all about. I know I said that and I wasn't able to do it. It wasn't... The, the Lord didn't permit me to do it. The, store, the, the plans changed. I know you're upset about that, but we're trying to get to heaven. We're trying to be ready for the day of the Lord. Paul was certain that in that day he would rejoice 
with, with people of the Corinthian church and that they would rejoice with him. He was certain that that was going to happen, that, were, that no misunderstanding was going to be allowed to change that, that no issue was going to be given power to steal that from them. He said, I know you're unhappy with me, but let's be careful here because we're trying to make heaven. Let's not make this into something it's not. A person with a clear conscience is serious about the will of God. Serious about the will of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 15 through 18, he continues, And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way towards Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that, will, that with me there should be a yea, yea, and a nay, nay? But as God is true, our word towards you was not yea and nay. Paul was not just randomly making plans and changing them. He was not manipulating them. He was not telling them one thing but really planning on doing another. He was not trying to make them feel good he, was not being, he wasn't lying to them, but he was seeking the Lord. And sometimes he didn't know what he was supposed to do next yet. But he knew he had to wait on the Lord. Amen. He didn't know what he was supposed to do, but he knew he was supposed to wait on the Lord. In the book of Acts, in the 16th chapter, we have these verses. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. Spirit said, no, don't do that. That's what they were going to do. That was the plan. But no, the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. The Holy Ghost forbids him to preach in Asia. The, he tries Mysia, he tries Bithynia, and the Spirit says no. He's traveling and trying to do something, and, and the Spirit's saying nope, nope, nope. He travels to Troas, and still nothing is opening up. But when the vision comes to go to Macedonia, he knew it was the Lord, and he went immediately. Immediately. Now here's the thing. There's probably people in every one of those cities that was mad at Paul. There was probably some saint's second cousin who lived on 3rd Street in Mysia that was told through a letter that Paul's heading that, that way. You're going to meet Paul. He's coming to Mysia. And then Paul doesn't go. The Spirit says, don't go. Somebody's probably upset. Somebody's probably frustrated. Why, why, I heard that was his plan. It was his plan. But his bigger plan was to do the will of God. That was the bigger plan. That's the overriding plan of his life, 
to do the will of God. And when the Spirit says no, he didn't go. And when the Spirit said go to Macedonia, he went immediately. Immediately. His motives were pure. He was seeking, this is, this is the key, this is the simple key. He was seeking to please God and not man. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with pleasing man. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing something that makes somebody happy. I don't think there's anything wrong with coming into agreement with someone when they're, it's really important to them and you don't really care that much and it's not that big a deal and you come into agreement with them. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The problem is when our men-pleasing overrides our God-pleasing. The problem comes in when we forget what does God want and we just start trying to figure out how to make everybody else happy. Amen. If you get wrapped up in pleasing the people in your life, if you get trapped into trying to look good to other people or be liked by other people, it's going to get you in a lot of trouble. It's going to get you in a lot of trouble. And I want, to under, I want you to understand something. These are life lessons. So when I speak about stuff like this, I'm not just talking about in the church body. I'm talking about on your job. I'm talking about in your neighborhood. I'm talking about even with your family. You have to be careful with your conscience. You have to be careful with what you will do to please others in the face of not pleasing God. You have to be careful. Because it can lead you to places that you never intended to go. Jesus instructs us to mean what we say. Matthew 5, 37, let your communication be yea, yea. Nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. What is he saying? He's saying a simple yes or no is enough. He's saying adding more to it makes you look less trustworthy. He's saying, I promise, I swear, you can trust me. Would I ever let you down? For some reason, when you hear those things, you start to think, well, I didn't think so a minute ago, but now I feel like you might let me down. When people go off on these long, I swear on my grandmother, blah, 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 blah. I just want to be like, I don't, I don't trust anything you say after that. I, don't, not, I feel like everything out of your mouth after that is going to be a lie. One of the ones we've got to be careful with is we'll say stuff like, well, let me be honest. <laughs> I've caught myself saying that. I'm like, that sounds so, I mean, all that saying to people is like, there are times you're not being honest. So I have to clarify every time. Let me be honest. Truth, truth. What's, what's the new one? What's the new, what's the new one? I'm looking at some of these teenagers down here. I'm scared to say it. I don't know. I know there's an on God, I think. that. I, ah, see, I must have hit a button. You say, I, think, I don't know exactly how it works, but I think you say something and then you say on God. And that's supposed to mean that it's for real. We shouldn't be doing that. And all the adults said amen. amen. 
We don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. Why? Because the Bible says, let it, let it be yea or let it be nay. You don't have to add a bunch of stuff to it. They knew Paul to be a man of character. Everybody say character. character. And the reason why they knew him to be a man of character was because he was a man of clear conscience. That's why. When we have a clear conscience, we glorify Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 19 through 20, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Amen. We are being Christ-like when we are, when our yes means yes. And our no means no. That's Christ-like. That's Christian. That your word counts for something. That's Christian. We cannot glorify Christ and practice deception at the same time. It violates our conscience and it erodes our character to glorify Christ and, and be manipulative. And, and let's, just be little, let's just be clear here that we give passive-aggressive a little bit of a ha-ha pat on the back, but really passive-aggressiveness is manipulation. It's manipulation. And manipulation is deception. Can I get an amen? amen. It's deception. We're being Christ-like. When our yes is yes and our no is no. And it violates our conscience and erodes away our character when it is not. Because the truth will come out. The work that we do flows out of the lives that we live. Our character shows. This is why the Bible speaks of this whole, this whole idea of the fruit of the Spirit. The whole idea of the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of being filled with the Spirit. I thought that was speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of speaking of the, of the Spirit. But the fruit of that Spirit must start to come alive in us. People are supposed to be able to see that. Speaking in tongues is something that you can hear and that's powerful. But what do they see now? What are they seeing in your life that is evident that you are, you are a temple of the living God, that you have been filled with the spirit of the almighty God? Jesus Christ, God coming in flesh and dying on the cross, that's an eternal yes. That's what Paul is trying to say. There's an eternal yes. There's a God who speaks yay and amen that you can put your confidence in. That what he accomplished is not going to fade. What he did is not somehow going to no longer be enough for us. He's not going to come and ask for more now. He's not going to pull the rug out. He's not going to use the, uh, the carrot on the stick. Amen. Amen. And if you're an employer, you know what I'm talking. If you're an employee, you know what I'm talking about. The old carrot on the stick thing don't work very long. You put that little carrot out there in front of them and you say, if you get this, if you achieve this, we're going to, uh. and, 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 you know, at first all the employees are like, ah, 
until they realize they can't ever get, the, the care keeps moving. Can't seem to ever achieve it. And then what do they do? Forget that. That's dishonest. That's manipulative. That's a lie. Amen. But he says that Christ is our example. And Christ, what he did, was not a lie. It was true and it was certain and it's forever settled. And when he does things, he does them in a way that you can count on him. That, that, that's how it's always going to be. God is very predictable. People don't like when you say that. The reality of it is, we have enough of the heart and the mind of God in Scripture that you can predict the behavior of God in almost any given situation. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he is consistent with how he interacts with his people, then you can learn of him and you can understand how he's going to do it. What he's going to do. I'm not putting us on the level with God. I'm not saying that we're somehow, you know, uh, uh, omniscient, omnipotent beings. I'm just saying that he is a consistent God. He's a consistent God. The promises that Christ reveals, he fulfills those promises. He enables us to claim those promises. We can put our hope and trust in the things that Jesus says. We can believe that if he said it, it's going to come to pass. Amen. It's a confidence builder. It helps us to understand how we can relate with him. It helps people who have had trust issues their entire life. They've had trust issues their entire life because how they were handled as a child or how they were manipulated as a teen or because of people that should have been there for them that weren't for them or should have loved them and didn't love them. They've had trust issues their entire life. They come to Christ and his persistent consistency, his just same yesterday, today, forever, he says that he's going to do it. Over time, that builds trust back into their life. Amen. And we celebrate that and we should celebrate that because it's a powerful thing to have a God that you understand and a God that you can trust. But I want us to also understand we are his representatives on the earth. We are supposed to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. So people ought to be able to look at us. And our yay, yay, and our nay, nay, they ought to be able to look at us and see trust, see consistency, see character, see integrity. They should be able to know that. Shouldn't be a question. Shouldn't be a question. Amen. A good conscience allows us to claim the promises of God without fear of God or man. He wasn't, Paul was not manipulating the word of God when he uses it in this, this instance of of, of confusion with the Corinthians and, and they're attacking him and they don't understand what he's doing. And he, he invokes the word of God. He's not just taking the Bible way out. When, in my years in youth ministry, I used to get on to teenagers all the time when they would want to break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Suddenly they were spiritual. God told me to break up with them. I think God told you to break up with them six months ago. That's what I think. 
and I think you're tired of them now, and God, now God told you to break up with them. I think you found a new girlfriend, and you, God told you to break up with the old girl. That's what I think happened. Paul was not manipulating the word of God. He was not using God's word to somehow get himself out of a jam, blaming it on God. Finally, with a clear conscience, we will be in tune with the spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-24. Now he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now. You can try this, try using the Word of God, manipulative and all that, but if you're going to be that bold, I call God for a record upon my soul, you better have a clear conscience. You better be standing in integrity if you're going to say that. That to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand. He says, established. Now he which established us with you in Christ. Established here, is, it's, it's, it's like a business term as to the guaranteeing of a contract. It was the assurance that the seller gave to the buyer. He's saying the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that we can trust him. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that we can trust him. Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. Paul was careful not to burden the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit did not convict him of his actions, he knew his motives were pure and his conscience was clear. I want you to hear what I just said. When the Spirit did not convict him, he knew he was okay. They were mad at him. They hated him. They were calling him a liar. They were saying he was a manipulator. But when God was saying, you're fine, then he was fine. I want you to understand the power and the value of that. I want you to understand the value of that in this world where we interact with humanity all the time. I want you to understand the value of that in a world that is becoming increasingly more accusatory and where attacks against Christianity are on the rise. I want you to understand the value of a world that tries to uh, uh, tear down people, to cancel people, to spread gossip about people. How are you going to stop that? You will not stop that. You are not going to stop it. Somebody is going to slander your name. Somebody is going to make up something about you. Somebody is going to gossip and backbite about you. Somebody is going to tell a story that is not true. You will not stop that from happening. But when it's happening, you'll be able to keep your head up and you'll be able to keep moving forward when the Spirit is saying, you're okay. When God is saying, you're all right. I got you. This is going to be okay. When you know you're right with God, what kind of man can you fear? Who are you going to fear if you're right with God? 
See, the Holy Spirit is enabling us to serve God and to live godly lives. And he gives us spiritual discernment to serve God acceptably. It encourages us in the right direction, teaches us in the ways of correctness or righteousness. It helps us live this life right. Helps us to live this life right. If we continually disagree with what the Spirit is telling us, we have a problem. If we continually disagree with what the Spirit of God is saying, we have a problem. We need to deal with that problem. When we resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when we go against the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when we deny the Holy Spirit, we cannot trust the choices that we are making You cannot trust yourself if you're denying God. You cannot trust your mind. The heart can be deceitful above all if you're not listening to the voice of God. If you're not obeying the will of God, there is just a million ways to mess it up. There's only one way to get it right. God's will be done. Not my will, but thy will. Following the voice of the Lord. We cannot accuse God if we've denied God. We cannot blame God if we deny God. If we're not listening to God. I'll re- this, once again, this is why so much pastoral advice begins with, have you been praying? Have you been reading your Bible? Have you stayed up on your spiritual disciplines? Is your relationship with God right? People don't want to hear it. They want counsel. They want you to, they want therapeutic counsel. Well, therapeutic counsel has its place, but when you're talking to a pastor, if he doesn't ask you about your relationship with God, when you're going through all kinds of nonsense and stress and you're worried and stressed out and confused and you don't know what to do, then he's missing something big. The majority of the time, the majority of the time, when people come and they are frustrated and confused and they don't know what to do and they're all struggled and turned around and they don't know what's going on and they're worn out and they're just full of all kinds of stress and fear, the majority of the time their relationship with God is weak and has not been prioritized. And most of the time, 100, I'll say this, 100% of the time, when they actually do prioritize their relationship with God, things get better. Doesn't happen overnight. I'm not saying it's some sort of magic pill. I'm just saying that it does get better. But this is the value that when we, when we don't deny God and we listen to God, and the choices and the decisions we make, we can count on them to be correct. We can count on them to be right. Amen. An unclean conscience limits the light of truth in our lives. That dirty window. It's not letting everything in. That's supposed. We're not getting all of the information. We don't have all the information. That dirty window's not letting all the light in. You gotta clean 
your conscience. You got to repent. You got to get some stuff out of there. Amen? When we keep our conscience clean, we can trust ourselves. We can stand in the face of accusation. And we can trust that God is going to back us up when we keep our conscience clean. David's brother, David shows up with his little lunch. He's just the little, the little brother with the little lunch. And he, he says some faith-filled words, and his brother says, I know the naughtiness of your heart. I know what you're here for. You got the, you're, you're, you're here for the wrong reasons. But David doesn't shrink. He doesn't drop his head. David has a clear conscience. David has a clear conscience. He says, he says no. He says, no, I'm, I know why I'm here. And I'm, I'm beginning to realize why I'm here. I know what God wants me to do. I got to go out. And I got to speak against this. That would defy the Lord our God. I have to go out. Amen. You come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. That's a clear conscience. That's a clear conscience to be able to step out on that in that situation when someone else, his own brother, was being accusatory towards him. David's like, no, that's, that may be what you think, that may be how you feel, but that's not right. Because I've got God saying something else to me. Oh, hallelujah. Stand with me if you would, please. My, my, my journey tonight is to try to get us to understand there is the strong biblical case for a, for a clean conscience. 